the elderly population in Belgium still read the newspaper a lot. We see a large move towards digitalization, so they all have a smartphone. And then they basically could just activate FibriCheck through the newspaper. Once the newspaper got out, we had 65,000 people within 24 hours registering their heart rhythm for seven days consecutively. And based on this, we could screen very efficiently at very large volumes, which was actually never done before. Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders, explore the projects, challenges, and victories in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Care Captains. And today I'm delighted to have Lars Greeten on the show. Hey, Lars, how are you today? Hi, Norbert. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks for inviting me. Lars, thanks for coming. And we have been knowing each other for several years right now, and we connected in digital health. With your co-founders, you have uh, successfully started uh, FibriCheck, and then after, I think you also started Extra Horizon. So maybe that would be the first big question for you today. What does FibriCheck do? FibriCheck is a software as a medical device application that converts a consumer electronic device, like a smartphone or a wearable into a medical diagnostic device. And specifically, it means that a user just needs to put a finger on the camera for one minute. We extract an optical signal from that. And based on this, we can derive different type of heart rhythm disorders or cardiac arrhythmias. And when you say camera, can I assume that uh, this is an iPhone or an Android device or what camera you load it to? That is exactly the differentiator that you need to come after. It's We just use ordinary smartphone cameras, irrespective of the device. So if it's an iPhone or an Android, it actually doesn't matter. The AI behind the system is capable of processing that data and get the highest quality data out of the, out of the phone. And when you say processing the data and, and have the highest quality kind of like insights coming out, what exactly you are going to achieve with the tool? In artery or fibrillation, if I'm not mistaken, that's the disease, what you cover. Do you monitor, do you diagnose, do you prognose? What exactly the intended use is? The intended use is to detect and manage cardiac arrhythmias. And atrial fibrillation is one of the most common and most dangerous heart rhythm disorder because it's also called a silent killer. But on the other side, you also have a lot of people that have symptoms that think they have something about their heart rhythm. And basically, FibriCheck enables you to say, okay, this is atrial fibrillation or this is something else that you should not worry about and therefore can objectify those symptoms. So it's actually a broader range than just detecting AFib. And what is the normal standard of care in diagnosis or detection, what you are making better, faster, and even, I think, more efficient? What you are comparing against? The gold standard technology is called an electrocardiogram or an ECG. And that requires to create an electrical reading of the heart. And what we're doing is optical reading. So we're taking photoplatismography or PPG, which is basically measuring the pulse waveform in the fingertip or in the skin. And we're comparing PPG to the gold standard ECG. And when you talk about this uh, PPG technology, I was just wondering that how difficult was to come up with this uh, novel solution and uh, package it into a medical device and use it in an actual iPhone or Android setting. The PPG technology is something that's actually very simple to use. The only thing that you need is a light source and a light detector and a patch of skin on which you can apply that. The challenge becomes into play is when you are looking beyond the obvious things like just measuring heart rate. And that's where 
the entire challenge comes into play. How do you get the highest quality of data that is trustworthy to make the correct assessments? And then, of course, you need to do the complete R&D behind that to make sure that your algorithms work fine. You need to validate that. And then you need to package this into a regulatory package that you can then bring through certifications to get it on the market and then start your commercial journey. So, and that's, that's a very lengthy and heavy process to get that done. Let, let's decode that because I think developing the algorithm is already a monster challenge. And then you said the clinical validation, then the regulatory clearance, getting to the market. So going through on each steps, uh, what were these pivotal challenges developing the algorithm and the solution itself, Lars? When we started, and this is already now more than 10 years ago, so 2014, we developed the algorithm based on very traditional algorithms. So traditional single processing, you, you need a specific data set, you try some things out, and then you go to 50, 100 patients, you test it and you validate it, and that's your first indications. And that's typically enough to get your first proof of principle out there. From that point onward, you need to find a road towards improvement, because in the end, you're need to manage risks. So if your algorithm has a certain accuracy, you need to um, demonstrate that accuracy that that's performing well, but then also ensure that your evolution is there that keeps improving that accordingly. And for that, you need significantly more data. And then the question is, how do you get that done? So in your growth path, getting your first data set is key, but then getting your roadmap to continue the evolution on that one, that's where the second challenge actually starts to come into play. Challenge meaning the clinical validation of the continued improvement of the tool, or it's um, already coming back to the R and D process. What exactly the second level of uh, challenge here? What you meant, uh, Lars? Challenge of data is that you need to overcome the barriers of confined environment. So when you go to a hospital and you do a test in a specific patient population, you have a very pre-selected population in which you can demonstrate something. But once you get your solution outside of the hospital and into the hands of the free living condition or the free living people, then you start to face a lot of usability related problems or quality related problems. And that kind of data set where you demonstrate robustness and have the performance linked to robustness, that's where a second challenge comes into play. For example, if my hand were shaking and then the signal is maybe scrambled or maybe the light of the torch is not strong enough, these are the challenges what you need to overcome. Did I get it right? Yeah, exactly. Or you run up the stairs and you have a tachycardia when you get upstairs and you do a measurement. Get the, getting that kind of contextual information, meaning that everything is actually fine with you because you ran up the stairs compared to while you were sitting down and having a high heart rate of 110, 120 beats per minute is a completely different clinical meaning. And that getting that kind of segregation of understanding, that's, that's a real challenge to overcome. Time flies. I forgot that you have been already doing that for 10 years right now. And these days, uh, AI became really a daily world, uh, word what we are using, especially with ChatGPT. What can you tell about your AI solution in FibriCheck? How do you use that to improve the application? In 2018, we decided to leave traditional signal processing behind us and move towards the first AI implementations. And at that time, we were on the market. So FibriCheck was commercialized in 2017, and we started to get real-world data collected. And then in 2023, so this year in uh, February, we released a groundbreaking innovation on our AI site where we trained our models based on a million data sets obtained from more than 100,000 people living in their home environment. 
and actually got groundbreaking results in our performance. So finally, after eight years, nine years of work, you have enough data to train the AI to really become differentiating and really become so valuable that you are challenging the status quo of the gold standard. And that's where we currently, where we're currently at. Wow, one million data set from hundred thousand people at home, and I think you started at Belgium. So, are you still operating in Belgium, or you already expanded outside of your home country? We got the approval for the market access or the CE classification class two A approval. We got that in two thousand seventeen, and from that point onward, we started to expand our activities. We initially launched in Belgium, and that's actually one of the key learnings we had. Then the challenges actually start so getting the product on the market seems like a challenge but actually the journey starts when you're on the market uh, belgium was a starting country but we expanded to benelux united kingdom rest of europe and now we're also in the middle east and um, asia pacific region wow even asia pacific okay we come back to this in a second uh, the go to market strategy i think we uh, go back for a second to the clinical validation you come from research setting and i think you collaborated with many hospitals in belgium can you tell us more about how did you perform the clinical validation of fribicheck the level of evidence that you need starts at a very baseline level and that's initially with the first subjects we did we we really put a catheter in people's arms while they were holding a camera and then comparing that data to what the camera was seeing and then building our way on top of that to get data on, of diseased people that have the condition which you compare to your solution, then send those people home, collect data in that setting. And then you start to look at interventions when they had a specific intervention, what is the outcome of that intervention and can your technology see that difference? So it's really about building layers like an onion to accumulate a scientific evidence and that's what you do yourself but what we've learned over the last years is that you yourself are not able to generate one that that amount of volume of scientific evidence yourself that's that's one challenge you don't have the funds nor time for that and secondly you you're always biased because it's your own data and the, the outside world perceives that as industry you're always having a specific bias to your results that you show so the enablement and that's where the big catalyzer for us came from was that we enabled our partners to do scientific research with our application and in the last three years we have quadrupled pentupled our output scientific output and we have now more than 70 peer-reviewed publications which we are not initiated from our side and that's really where we see that the scientific evidence grew but also the scientific acceptance about your technology starts to make a significant difference congratulations 70 peer-reviewed uh, articles papers um, investigator initiated trials that's uh, really a, a great achievement and do you see here also that the clinical adoption of your uh, application FibriCheck is also increasing um, as more and more scientific buy-in is taking place surprisingly not as we expected we feel that the success criteria for a medtech solution actually is linked to three barriers you need to solve one is the market access so get your product on the market second is what we call acceptance and that's the scientific evidence that your solution is there and preferably it's recommended by guidelines but the third one and that's the adoption metric that is heavily driven by reimbursement and when you start to see that you have a new technology in the market which is not yet reimbursed despite that you have awesome scientific results 
it does not mean that clinicians or physicians are willing to use your solution above what they're using today, despite that efficiency gains or outcomes are even better with the new technology. And that was a very surprising learning we had when you hit the market. And I think in Belgium, you already got reimbursement and Germany also has a digital reimbursement pathway, I think, DIGA. So what were these countries where you successfully overcame this reimbursement hurdle? We are now getting our first successes. So last year we got reimbursed in the Netherlands. That was one of the first countries that adopted such a solution. So that was um, a very nice milestone. Then in the United Kingdom, we have received regional reimbursements. Uh, in Belgium, we have two types of reimbursements. One is where insurance providers offer a cost compensation to their insurees. And on the other side, we are expecting this year a national-wide reimbursement for physicians that prescribe FibriCheck to their patients. And the interesting part is that you're coming into a copy-paste mode. So what we've done in the Netherlands, we've learned, adopted from that, applied us to this to Belgium. And this is what we're now copy-pasting to other countries to expand our market access accordingly. Unfortunately, as a starting co- or as a young company, this goes way slower than you initially expect. And everything takes much more time before you actually get there. But that, that process is something that you just need to get through. This would have been the question that uh, would you have expected this 10 years back when you started, but you already nicely alluded that it was much longer than expected. Maybe we come back to that in a second, but I wanted to also a little bit pick your brain on the regulatory clearance, because when you started, the regulatory frameworks for digital health solutions were not so established yet. So what did you learn during this regulatory clearance process, Lars? The regulators, they don't know how to regulate a solution like ours, because we are a software as a medical device using a non-traditional signal to detect heart rhythm disorders. And there's actually no experience in the market how to solve that problem. So you need to convince them, motivate them, demonstrate the data needs to speak for itself to really make that clear to them. So there is nothing when we started out. Today, there are more frameworks getting into place, but that meant that we had to do everything ourselves from building it technically to validating it to there's no literature to which we could rely on. So it's really doing it all yourself. Did you have any companies what you could use as a potential case for you, which helped the regulatory clearance? Maybe you could learn from them or maybe you could use them as a predicate device or you really needed to build everything from scratch? In the European landscape, we did not have a predicate device to compare with and all the evidence we did was against the gold standard. So that was that was the European case. We also received the first FDA approval in 2018, and there was luckily one predicate device that was out there, so we could use a 510K comparing to them, but unfortunately that that device was no longer in the market. So you had to compare it to a different reference device, and that is where we use another ECG solution. And demonstrating that process was a bit more straightforward compared to Europe, but the challenge is that the FDA has a much more strict compatibility requirements than the European market and therefore is actually much more challenging than getting your product live in Europe. So you already have the FDA approval secured. Did you commercially already launch in the US? No, because the first approval we got was only FibriCheck approved on a specific phone model and that would actually limit your value proposition significantly. So what we're trying to do is to figure out a way how you actually can get your product on any smartphone that you really can become device agnostic because only then the commercial model makes sense. If you have to select a patient population with a preset of devices or 
you need to hand out devices, then the entire cost efficiency that you're trying to establish is actually not succeeding. So overcoming this barrier of compatibility is one of the key differentiators that we need to focus on. Understood. Moving on to the go-to-market strategy, now you are in many, many markets, even in UK and Asia-Pacific. Uh, you heavily rely on probably the distribution network, app stores of um, iPhones and maybe Google Play. So how you can actually bring fever check to the physicians and to the users? What's the, what's the secret sauce of uh, uh, launching in a new country, your uh, tool, FibriCheck, Lars? Well, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a secret sauce because we're still tasting the sauce, which works best to say it like that. What we've learned is that, and what we should have done differently when looking back, is that we should, compared to a traditional medtech company, you have a go-to-market strategy and you execute on that one and you have a big team that can deploy this internationally. As a small company, you need to be agile and you need to adapt to every market needs and requirements. And that means that you need to follow the path where the money can be found. Uh, when we started in 2017, we had the idea that physicians would prescribe the application to patients. We tried that for a year. That didn't run as we imagined. So we looked for other business models, went into the screening business to say, okay, what if we offer our solution as a screening solution to do health assessments on large populations? That also did not, that was more project-based, not recurring revenue. So then you start looking into, okay, what if we can remove the barrier to get our product in the hands of the end user who is looking for a value uh, driver on that one. Then you have a consumer model. And in the end, you basically have two, three business models next to each other. And then that that's complex to manage from a technical level, but also from a company level. But once you have that versatility, then every market, you, you can find a solution actually in every market to follow the, the path towards revenue. And that's that was an interesting learning that having that ability to say, okay, for a UK market, which is much more B2C driven than, for instance, a French market, could enable you to have a different growth phase in different countries accordingly. And that is something that was quite an interesting uh, learning as well. So if I understand correctly, you have now different business models, what you have tested in various settings, and then technically you can adopt to the market needs that specific model, which potentially works the best. Yeah. And today we have defined actually two main business models. So one is what we call OTC or direct to the end user. And the other one is what we call on prescription or for physicians to enable their patients. And they can be facilitated by either bringing those models to the market ourselves or to work with partners, uh, which can either integrate or offer this directly. And then the partners become a catalyzer for your core business models. So first was to fan out and understand how it works. And then now the challenge is how do you condense this into something that is scalable and maintainable and drives a recurring business model? And technically, in the OTC model, I, as a patient, would pay for that uh, yearly or monthly license via my iTunes account. And then technically, I'm using this data. And if I want, I share it with my GP versus mm -hmm. the on prescription would be more like a medical need, which is reimbursed by the state or the healthcare system on demand basis. Or, or what are the major differences between these two models, Lars? The OTC model is what we call, there is no physician in the loop. That means that the end user is responsible for their own data and also the call to action linked to that data, and they pay out of pocket. 
the physician model, it means that you are under supervision of a physician who actually initiates you on a monitoring program, which is also an end date. So it's always on demand, as we call it. And they can take proactive actions or they can look at the data afterwards and see if something happened accordingly and take actions in, in, in a more passive way. So those two implementations are are what the difference is between a consumer and a physician model. So one is rather a kind of like lifestyle and a proactive approach. And another one is really under a physician supervision. And then oh. I worry serious problems. I, I would not yet take the, the term lifestyle into, into consideration because when we look at who downloads the application, and that's where you get a lot of learnings and insights from your target population, you see that either 40% of that group has symptoms, 20% had the condition before and they want to check if they are still okay. 20% is because they are at risk of developing this condition. They have m much more comorbidities and only 20% is curious to learn what this actually is. So I would say that 20% of our population is lifestyle, but all the others, they have a clear incentive why they download the application because it solves a problem they are facing in their daily life. And uh, from the age perspective, do you see a trend that maybe rather 50 plus or 60 plus users are using FibriCheck or you have also different age demographics as well in the usage? The patient population, the average age there is around 70 years of age. So we're really in the elderly population for when it's a patient and a patient is under supervision of a physician. When we talk about a consumer or end user, they are in the range above 54, 55 years of age on average. That's the average age, but it's a distribution that you have. So we're really in the right population where it makes sense to look for problems related to heart rhythm problems. Very good. And now coming a little bit to the to the challenges that uh, you have been in business now for 10 plus years, what were these pivotal moments, what you vividly remember, it was difficult to overcome from the R&D perspective, clinical validation, regulatory hurdles. What were these difficult milestones uh, for you to achieve in this journey, Lars? The milestones we've overcome are way smaller than the ones that we now need to overcome. But when you look forward, you see only big barriers in front of you. The first one was getting as a first digital health application in Europe, uh, your, your CE approval. That, that process took us from 2014 to 2017. So that was a process of three years to get everything up and running, your entire quality system, your entire regulatory approval process, your scientific validation, all that stuff. But then once you're on the market, it really becomes a challenge how to commercialize that and one of those things was scalability. So we worked a lot on finding a technological innovation. How can you scale efficiently with such a solution? And one of the big milestones we had there was we did a population screening in 2018 where we onboarded 65,000 people in less than 24 hours. And we actually had, had the largest digital screening trial run in the world in the least amount of time. That was a huge milestone for us because it demonstrated that we could get to volume. Then the, the question after that is how do you get to sustainable revenue? And that that's another milestone we hit with the first reimbursement coming into place. But it was, again, five years before you hit that milestone. So it's always getting these things done that enable you to go to the next level. But looking back, it's always smaller than when you look ahead of you. <laughs> I see that you are putting yourself uh, into the future already and uh, thinking about the next challenges. 
Maybe coming back to this uh, population screening, uh, how do you onboard 65,000 people in one day? Did, did you run a big campaign or uh, there were like big billboards when people scan the QR code? What was the secret for this uh, fast onboarding, Lars? When we were in that process, we only had access to the application through an invitation code or a QR code. So that means that if you want to use FibriCheck, you need to scan the QR code and only then you could use it for a specific period in time. So what we did is we worked with the local newspapers and we put this QR code together with an educational article about what's the relevance of heart rhythm disorders and why you should be checking them if you're above 40 years of age or older. And people could just scan that QR code. So what is what was very interesting is that the elderly population in Belgium still read the newspaper a lot. We see a, la a large move towards digitalization. So they all have a smartphone. And then they basically could just activate FibriCheck through the newspaper. Once the newspaper got out, we we yeah, we we had sixty five thousand people within twenty four hours registering their heart rhythm for seven days consecutively, and based on this, we could screen very efficiently at very large volumes, which was actually never done before. So probably in older days, your servers would have melted down, but maybe now AWS or whatever cloud system you are running on handled it well. How did it feel having so many new patients, uh, users on the platform? For us, this was an epiphany because for the first time, you're able to see the potential of digital health and what you are able to achieve. You're able to really help people. So looking at the statistics and the metrics that come out of there, you see how many people actually have a problem that were not yet aware they had a problem. So that means that you're able actually helping people and that drives intrinsic motivation enormously. But then afterwards, when you start to look at the data and you start to see where things went well and things went wrong, you're able to make significant improvements by learning on that data. And I think that's one of the key things we took away from day one is that we've never changed the way that how we collect data from the first day until today. And that means that we can still recycle all that data to make our future improvements. So there's like a continuous innovation cycle happening. And this project was one of the differentiators that enables that cycle. So we, we do R&D now very efficiently by using our real world data to improve on top of. And that was a key differentiator. To build on that one, I understand that uh, probably three, four years back, you created a new company, Extra Horizon, which offers this uh, R&D development and uh, regulatory services for third-party companies. How was this move for you? What triggered it? And then how is Extra Horizon doing these days? When we started FibriCheck in 2014, we had the ambition that we want to become a solution that has multiple application areas built on top of a platform. FibriCheck was one of those applications, but we never imagined that we could go that deep into one specific application area that we're still in today and we're still very focused on and still feel we're scratching the surface. But this platform vision has always been part of our architectural design of the solution that we can expand very efficiently in a very versatile way. Since FibriCheck has so many different business models and we're doing everything cloud-based, so it's an application that sends data to the cloud for processing and manages all those different processes for all those different use cases, that cloud part is basically the engine of our car. We've built this in a very modular design so that could even be very easily adapted and very flexible for our own needs. But then during COVID, we were contacted by different companies that had the ambition to build a solution, a product, an idea, a technology, but they didn't have the resources to commercialize this fast enough. And then they asked how we did it with FibriCheck. And we said, yeah, 
we have this backend solution now that is meeting all the necessary regulatory requirements. It's very versatile, very flexible and modular. And basically it meant that within four to six weeks, they were able to build a full working medical compliant product, which they only need to focus now on getting that product on the market, but not worrying about the technical investments required to get that built. And that's where the idea came. Well, maybe this platform that we built or this engine that we built, it could actually facilitate others to bring their product faster to market and reduce the technical overhead accordingly. And that's when last year we took the decision to say, okay, let's split the company into two companies. We have extra Ryzen on one side, delivering medical compliant cloud services. And on the other one, you have FibriCheck, which is building a device agnostic cardiac arrhythmia monitor. What a smart move. And I think for a couple of years, you were also CEO of both companies. COVID uh, came. I think uh, you also have right now two small kids. How did you personally manage these uh, tough years, Lars? Having an awesome founder team, because this is not something that is attributed to myself, but to the people around you. Um, so we started the company with four co-founders and they have been very broad shoulders on carrying this entire burden with. We challenge each other very well to make sure that we pursue in the right direction. And that is a secret on getting this done because uh, I'm a dad myself of two kids. Every co-founder has their own family life, but together we have very strong shoulders on which those two companies have been built. How is right now the founder team uh, doing versus the original team? We're still the same team. So we started 10 years ago with four people and today we're still with four people. Only um, one founder joined the Extra Horizon team because he was the CTO of FibriCheck and he was the godfather of the, the technical solution that actually Extra Horizon became. So he moved into that direction and we are not operationally involved with each other anymore. We're actually more like a, a customer supplier relationship. But on the back side, we are still engaging a lot to see and exchange ideas. And the three other founders are now focused on FibriCheck, where they have operational roles in getting FibriCheck to the next level. So I would say the four founders are still together, but operationally it's three and one. Congratulations, 10 years in, and then you are still uh, together. How do you make that happen in the daily interactions? What, what exactly the secret again of being together after 10 years and focusing on the future? Good question. I only have experience with my current co-founders, so I can only speak from that. But what really was important for us is that we we are four equals in this story, despite that function titles are different. But from a founder perspective, we are four equals and we all have the same vote and the same story to tell. We are treated equal. That goes both from salaries to privileges and those kind of things. So it's, it's very equal. And then um, we are four different personalities. We all look at the problem in a, from a different angle. And we took the, the promise to each other to always speak the truth and speak what we're thinking. And that means that you can have very vivid discussions, but also that only strengthens relationships. So I think that that has been key ingredients for us to move forward. And then we constantly motivate each other to push to the next level. So it's always, it's never good enough and we can always do better. And we're all reinforcing each other on that one. And I think that's what you really need to grow. Did you have moments when you agreed to disagree? And then how did you overcome these uh, stalemate situations? We still have those moments and that, that is fine. But in the end, the most important thing is that you should not be afraid to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. 
if your ego is not in the way, then you can overcome this. The moment that ego comes into play, then things start to break and fall apart. And I think now your company grew significantly. How, how many people uh, work for FibriCheck, if you can disclose this? Uh, FibriCheck, we now with 25 people and Extra Horizon is with 15 people. 15 people, so it's like 39, 40 people. How do you keep up the company culture? How do you onboard new colleagues? How do you make sure that the company goes to the direction where you want it to go? In a post-COVID world, this is different than in a pre-COVID world. And I, I think we're still figuring out how to improve on these points because we have a very hybrid work policy. We have people working from us from different countries that actually we only see once or twice every quarter or every half year. So getting a company culture instilled when you have a lot of remote force, that is challenging. Um, the secret sauce that we have there is a very good office manager. She's able to become the glue between things. She's the, the, the ears and the, the eyes of the, the company, and she can sense if things need attention or not. And I would say that that is very supportive on, on that one. Onboarding new people, we're never happy with the way that we onboard people, but when we speak to those people, it's always the best onboarding they ever had. So we're never satisfied. So that means that we're only striving to do it better every time. And I think making them part of the story, giving them a voice, giving them a place within a family feeling, I think that is key. And from us, from a management perspective, we are very transparent to the people. So we communicate on all the different and difficult topics. That means that the involvement and engagement also is very high. You have very ambitious goals and uh, de definitely you have uh, new challenges to work on. What keeps you awake these days, Lars? It is unclear what Promise Digital Health actually has to fulfill because there are so little successful examples out there yet. The question is, is this because it's digital health or because it's still young? We're not certain. So having a thought, what does the future bring and how do point solutions like ourselves need to adapt to that future? Because it will never be that for every solution you have a single product and in one way or another that needs to come together. So how do you overcome that one? That is one. Second is we're looking into a future that is fully digital enabled. The technology we use today, a smartphone and a wearable that is, that is now, that's from our current time. But what is the beyond that future hold? How should we prepare to that one? What can we or can we not yet do? And the third one is we are now in detecting problems, but can we predict problems? Can we prevent outcomes? How can you go beyond just finding a problem, but really changing the course of life of people based on learnings and insights that you get out of data accordingly? And that is then linked. Do you stay within a specific field or you diversify and broaden up? These are difficult challenges to address. Very ambitious challenges indeed. Maybe coming back to the first one um, you mentioned, and I, I really agree with you that uh, maybe the future of digital health is uh, still to be explored and there are not so many successful use cases, especially in Europe. How does your investor group uh, deal with this uncertainty? How do you get the long-term license to operate and buy from your uh, financial investors? I, that's a very good, but also a trick question. On one side, they're investors, they have a specific horizon and outlook that they want to get their return on investment from, but they also have a mission beyond the ROI and that's the impact that they want to make um, and they want to see the products make that they invest in. So they have a longer viewpoint and perspective and they are open-minded 
to these processes. And that's that's a challenge to find those type of investors and pull them together because as soon as you start to get more financial driven uh, investors in there, then your KPIs need to be there or you're able to you're not able to get your growth steps. On the other side, you need sufficient funds to make sure that you're able to hit those milestones. So it's like a, a catch-22 that you have on that one, getting the right people and we love our investors, but you also need to have ambitions you want to achieve and balance that out by finding the right road towards funding. Very well said that uh, there has to be a good fit uh, in between the startup scale up and in between the investors. What's your long-term goal for FibriCheck? What's the 10 plus uh, years uh, horizon for you and for the founder team, Lars? To say it an investor talk, it's either an IPO or an acquisition. So I would say that's that's the outlook that you're looking into. From a personal perspective, I would really like to see that this finds its story into mainstream. When we are 10 years further and we look to where we are at that point in time, I just want to see people on the street that really were helped with our solution and that when they are being treated or when they are having problems that they that they are using our product. So getting it out there and really making it mainstream, that is that is the goal because that means that you de-risked your entire cycle. You found your revenue streams, your scalable business model, and you grew to such a level that you are a force to be reckoned with. And I I would say that's that's what we are focused on, getting that continuity in our product, in our business model, in growing our solution. Maybe to follow up on that one, and maybe from your kids' perspective, I think now they are getting to an age of uh, three, four, if I count well, you have two boys, don't you? Yes, yes. Two boys. When they ask that what uh, Papa does for a living, what, what's your answer? How would you explain to them what you are doing day by day? I am playing with smartphones. That's what they know. <laughs> okay, very good. And, <laughs> and what, what are you playing uh, with the smartphones? Did, do they ask this question? They, they they don't they don't grasp anything of that. So the only thing that they know is that I play with the phone. Uh, I work with the phones, and that's all they know so far. Next year, I maybe can explain a bit more about the heart and what we're doing with health. But uh, today, it's the smartphone because that's the only thing that they get their attention from. By the way, so uh, as long as it has a screen for them, it's fine. So I'm I'm working with phones for them. What a cool job uh, playing with uh, smartphones. And uh, speaking of uh, next generation. I think you have also uh, several young colleagues in your team. Uh, you have uh, engineers, uh, different generations are coming together in your company. You are an entrepreneur uh, by yourself. Uh, entrepreneurship uh, looks uh, really nice uh, from the outside, but uh, definitely it has ups and downs. What would be your key tips and tricks uh, for uh, next generation entrepreneurs, especially in digital health and in healthcare? Hmm. I think you need, the ability to dream, um, but the dreaming also has an opposite side that you need to be realistic, that you need to wake up at a certain point in time and you need to make those dreams come true. This is not happening overnight. We are in the world of instant gratification and especially the youngsters, they feel like there is a plan for everyone out there, but nobody's making your plan. You need to make it yourself uh, and you need to do this very consistently, not with motivation, but with discipline and consistency, because it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. So getting that healthy dose of perseverance is key, but you should not be get blinded in the process. So surround yourself with people that are able to challenge you on that and then bring it all to reality. So 
if you have a great idea, that's awesome, but make a business plan so that it can work. Follow where the money is. Don't go for funds too fast because you put weights in your backpack. And if you are getting funding, make sure that you have sufficient funds to de-risk your growth so that you can cover your milestones and create an outlook. I think that's what my advice would be to that next generation entrepreneurs. What a great advice. Lars, thanks for sharing all these insights with our audience. It was really a pleasure having you on Care Captains. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Norbert. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Care Captains on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. See you next time.